Hello, and welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I chat with interesting and inspiring people uh, doing fascinating things who encourage me and hopefully you guys to get out of our comfort zone. We also dig down into their uh, tips and strategies about how they get out of their comfort zone on a regular basis. Today's guest is Alex Hare. Uh, Alex is an inspirational woman with a passion for science. And more recently, she's got the ball rolling um, on a desire for physical adventure that had been bubbling away uh, below the surface for a little while. Uh, Alex has done some pretty awesome professional things um, and had emotional ups and downs uh, as she grew grew up through her 20s, um, but she came to the decision that she hadn't really tested herself uh, physically, and she asked herself the question, what are you? What am I doing right now at this point in time to explore that? So all of this led to her signing up for the Clipper Around the World Yacht Race, um, in which she'll be uh, she'll be racing two legs. So it's going to be a pretty epic adventure for her, um, which she's just about to leave on. Uh, she leaves the day after the podcast comes out. So obviously we talk a little bit about what the Clipper Around the World Yacht Race is and all of the things involved with that. But some of the other topics that we cover in today's conversation uh, are the leaky pipeline of gender throughout the scientific industry, the importance of having challenging big conversations, why an important part of being a human is helping society. We chat around the concept of resilience talk about the importance of having conversations with our uh, with others about our dreams and why this is really important as adults as well as kids. Uh, the importance of re- making regular mistakes and why you should always make your bed. Uh, now, sorry, my voice is a bit croaky today. I ran the Wellington Urban Ultra Marathon yesterday and I think it is just having a hard time um, in sympathy with how my muscles are feeling today. For those of you that are interested, I'll I'll be doing a bonus episode about the the Woo2K and popping it out later this week. But for now, thank you for getting uncomfortable with me and Alex today. Okay, podcast. Thank you very much for coming around and sharing some time with me this afternoon. Kind of dragging yourself out of your sick bed. <laughs> no problems, Chris. Yeah, and you're sounding. Your voice is sounding fantastic, by <laughs> the way, you. as well. Um, 
Alex, can you let me and the listeners know a little bit of background about yourself, kind of where, where you grew up, what you were into as, uh, as young Alex? <laughs> young Alex, goodness. Um, flashback, flashback to the 1980s for those that are listening and remember the 80s, yeah. which was a, a wonderful period in our history. Mm, it was beautiful. <laughs> I, I love the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, I grew up in a very, very small country town in South Taranaki. In New Zealand, a little place called Maxwell. Uh, I think population was around about maybe 200 or something like that. Mm-hmm. On the on the state highways, you go up the west coast of New Zealand. And um, I grew up in the inland part of this area on a farm with my mum and my dad and my little brother. And we had a really good life there. Um, so sheep and beef farm, lots of animals, you know, geese and obviously sheep and and uh, cows and uh, dogs that worked the stock, horses, so lots and lots of horses. So quite remote. Mm. So I think the closest neighbour was around five kilometres away. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, what was I like as a child? I used to collect things. <laughs> what sort of things? <laughs> a little bit strange. Um, leaves and put them in containers and, and rocks. And I think that's where I've eventually ended up and what I do with science. But um, I was a collector. Yeah. Collector of things and curious about collecting things and allocating them. And Yeah. What did you, like, what did you enjoy about that? Was it the kind of obtaining things or was it the, did you investigate them after you'd collected them or did you just um, put them out and I think I was just really, really curious. I was mm-hmm. a very nosy child. Yeah. You know, um, if I found a rock that had different colours or a shell on the beach that had different colours, I was particularly proud of myself, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it was materialism. I think it was around... Yeah, curiosity and adventure yeah. and, and investigation, you could say. So all of the things that maybe make up the mind of a of a young young scientist perhaps. But um yeah, so I had a really great life on the farm. The um rural life in New Zealand is is pretty special. Mm. Um it's, you know, fresh air, you're very, very much in touch with the land and the countryside. You get to see um from a very, very young age how life and death works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, and where food comes from. And I think that that's really important. So I got to see sort of the life cycle and how, um, my father in particular looked after our stock with such care and empathy and attention, knowing that obviously eventually they were to, to create food for somebody or, or us. So it's a pretty special place. Um, mm-hmm. and you're very much in touch with the land. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. A lot of my growing up was kind of semi-rural, so we never lived on a farm, but we were we were out of town and we were kind of surrounded by farms. And my my parents were were friends with a lot of a lot of farmers as well. So as kids, we we got to go down and yeah, kind of feed the feed the pigs and feed uh, feed the animals and um, and like we we were never kind of shielded from the knowledge that sooner or later these animals were going to kind of end up on our, our on our plates i don't think we ever kind of saw their saw them take their last breath or anything not that i not that i remember at all i may have done um if i did it was obviously not that traumatic for <laughs> me at that at that point in time um but yeah there's there's something special about kind of having that understanding at a at a young age 
Yeah, and I think freedom as well, freedom to explore. Mm. Um, not no no uh, sort of no boundaries. You know, create yeah. huts in the bush and explore yeah. river systems and um, get dirty and yeah. really get stuck in and perhaps. Um, you know, injure yourself a few times, but when you're remote and you're exploring as a young child on the farm and you injure yourself and no one's there to listen to you complain, then you sort of just bounce back and get on with it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got to get home somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and what an, what an adventure that I'll tell when I return. Yeah, yeah, and no, no cell phones or anything <laughs> no, as well. Um, not at all. Yeah, and your, your bike's got to puncture 5Ks away and <laughs> I've got to push it home. Too right, too yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's good. So, how long were you? How long were you living on the farm for? Oh, um, so our family still has the farm, yeah. but I moved. Um, our little country school um, suffered from what a lot of little country schools do in New Zealand. It got smaller and smaller um, based on the demographic at the time in the in the in the village or the region. So, children um, weren't going to the country school. And so it eventually got closed down, and I went to um, a preparatory school in the big smoke of um, of Wanganui. So, <laughs> um, and that was that was quite different um, from sort of being very good at um, sport. Our uh, our school was very good at sport, and um, perhaps not as strong in in, in, in math and in other sort of areas that you're supposed to be strong in. <laughs> school um and then being faced obviously with um a uniform and a tie mm. stockings and shoes and I remember turning up within the first few weeks to this prep school and going along to rugby trials and getting told that girls didn't weren't allowed to play rugby and why on earth was I there and I was particularly a stubborn child so I'm not much different now actually <laughs> <laughs> um and then I turned up to um cricket trials and getting told the same thing so last resort was tennis trials ended up getting into the team and thank goodness was going on to us so yeah. so that was it was quite a, sh- uh, a shock going from the country school into the prep yeah. school but it was good do you remember how you responded when you said when people told you no you can't yeah you can't think, do this because you're a girl I think on reflection only now at, at my age now did I understand do I understand the gender thing um, but at the time, because gender was never a, uh, an issue growing up on the farm or even at the country school, school purely for, for the fact that if you could work and you were able, you would get stuck in, you know, mm. all hands on, on deck per se. Mm. Um, I'll try and not have as many <laughs> sailing puns throughout <laughs> yeah. a conversation. But um, it was, you know, you've, you've just got to get stuck in. So I probably, my reaction was more confusion. Um, I probably didn't at the time realize it was to do with girls or boys. It was more to do with, well, I'm fit and strong. I don't understand why I can't at least try to contribute. So it was a confusion thing. But then obviously later on, I I understand understand that a little bit more. Hmm. Looking back on it, how do you feel about it now? Um, I think it was a good showcase of um, my early drive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it was also a, 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 a reflection of that point, point in time. You know, nowadays, if that happened in certain schools, I don't think there would be an issue whatsoever to, to get involved and have a trial, mm. regardless of your gender, yeah. which I think is fabulous. So, um, 
yeah, a point in time in history, um, which you reflect upon now because it's obviously changed a lot for the better. Um, but then also reflecting on your yourself as a child is really re- you you're just an extension of that as a as an adult. So mm, <laughs> which is yeah. is a bit of a laugh, really. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's that's that's interesting. Uh, through most of my my school rugby career, uh, there was a a girl from Waihee who played in the boys team. Good all the on time. Her. Yeah, yeah. And, what was her name? Uh, Greer Wignall. And Greer Wignall. Yeah, when, Respect. Yeah, <laughs> when, especially when we were younger, she smashed us. She was so good. <laughs> yeah, she was just really good. Um, as as we grew up, she was still fantastically good. Um, but as guys, we just kind of grew a little bit bigger um so we didn't get quite as smashed by her every time we played but yeah just like so so competitive mm. as well and just such a good such a good rugby player it was cool to, it's cool to play against her yeah yeah i mean with the third option of the story about not getting accepted to the two trials mm. is the fact that i actually probably wasn't actually very good so <laughs> we've got yeah. to admit this you know yeah. they yeah. probably just said kylie no because they knew that i was actually a bit hopeless and i should go to another sport completely well, seen you try and catch a ball <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just go and hit it i know you've got a lot of sass but really <laughs> yeah yeah Oh, very, very cool. Um, and then Alex, we we met down in uh, Otago at yeah. university. Yeah. Uh, Fifteen years ago now. Yeah. Was it quite a wee while ago? Yeah, it was a little <laughs> while ago. <laughs> Back in the early early noughties. Yeah, yeah. What did you What did you go down to study, and why did you go down to study that? Yeah. So um, after prep school, I went to a boarding school um, in the metropolis. Many Martin, New Zealand, mm-hmm. hub of the Rangatiki. So um, it was a great, a great schooling, great sisterhood in that time, and quite competitive in terms of, um, you know, that uh, uh, a really big focus on success of whatever you were doing, whether it was singing or arts or, um, God forbid, synchronized swimming, which is something that was unique to the school that I was fiercely involved with academics as well. So many um, of the girls that did sciences um, were encouraged to go and, and pursue something like medicine. Um, I had an absolute passion for um, geography. I did international baccalaureate at the time, and I had this wonderful, wonderful teacher um, who um, spoke to, realised that when she was speaking to the young girls that she taught that she was speaking to a counterpart and she was very real and she would allow us to talk about all of our human things that were happening at the time as well as, um, you know, the, the the geography as a subject, but it was international. So we were studying lots of different projects from around the world. So I had this passion for geography and I ended up getting this world title in the IB world, which was pretty fantastic. But because of the pressure, I decided not to do geography and ended up choosing health science um, mm. down at Otago, which was a really unusual and unique choice because mm. I wasn't playing to my strengths. Anyway, lo and behold, I lasted six months in health science and, and realized pretty pretty fast that I kind of um, had more regard for 
soil and water than I did for bodies and bits. So <laughs> um, quickly transferred to a Bachelor of Science health science and a career in, in, in medicine um, is for those that have those strengths and a huge amount of respect, but it certainly um, was not my strength at the time. And I know, obviously, yeah. partner being a doctor, it's, it's, well, I it's was, pretty admirable. Yeah, I, was, I was first year health science as well, <laughs> yeah. the same, same as you. And it, we all it, went through it painfully. It's, a, it's an interesting, intense experience, I think, to go through, especially if you're sitting in a in a biology class that I don't know how many students St. David held, maybe 300 or 400 in a lecture with 400 other people. And that's like one of three or four of people taking this class. It's, I remember that um, chemistry class that, um, that we did in the lecture walking in and saying something like one in 10 people will pass this class you know, a really okay. optimistic start to the year. So. Yeah. I was lucky then. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. But I think um, also, if I'm going to be completely honest, um, the first six months of university are a bit of a riot. You know, you're balancing everything mm. else as well. You're balancing yeah. meeting a whole bunch of really interesting people. You're partying pretty hard because it's your first, ex- you know, experience of mm. that independent. You're in a pretty exciting space. You're also learning a whole bunch of, new things academically and you wanting to talk about them. So things are moving at quite a significant pace mm. and um, it was a pretty extraordinary fun time. Yeah. 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 I definitely agree with, uh, agree with that. Um, so you kind of, you, sh- you shifted uh, to the classes on the other side of the leaf um, <laughs> and obviously loved them a lot more than the, the, the health science stuff to start with. Yeah, definitely. Um, the geography degree there is fantastic. You get to get out and about as well, which was wonderful. Um, studying the coastal systems and up at Tekapo, and it's a pretty fantastic degree to do in New Zealand. And, you know, I'm a hard worker, um, and I couldn't wait to really just get out and work, to be quite honest. Um, I really admire people that are diligent and have the patience to continue on and and do their masters and their PhDs, and I'm forever encouraging people that I work with now that have they have that passion to do it. But um, I'm more of a pack horse. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought, you know what? I can critically think. I can show that I can critically think with a degree, and off I go into the big wild world. So. <laughs> yeah. So, what were your um, what were your first kind of steps outside of uh, outside of university? Where did you Where did you go? Oh, my first steps were door knocking because I needed yeah. a job as a young scientist in New Zealand. It's it's pretty difficult to get a job, so mm. I just used uh, the door knocking technique and sent a few letters and um, ended up meeting with the, uh, a wonderful group of people at a council in Hamilton, Environment Waikato. And um, getting a job, a six-month contract there is something loosely termed, goodness, what was it, sort of environmental advisor or environmental officer or something like that. I was pretty, um, I felt proud as punch when I got my first job. I was Mm. pretty overwhelmed and it was, yeah, it was a pretty special moment. Got to wear a uniform. Well, you know, I had a polo, yeah. polo t-shirt <laughs> for the first paycheck. I think it was on something ridiculous, like eleven dollars an hour. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, it was a great job. There was quite a few components to it. You you got thrown anything. Um. In that sort of environmental education and compliance division, um, as the newbie. Um. 
So I, I got given a, a project. Uh, there was an issue at Whangaroa near Ragland with the research institutes and community and councils probably not cohesively sharing information. So um, ended up working on a project there so they could connect a little bit more and we did a research day and resource day and it's a pretty exciting sort of program that's still mm-hmm. going on today. That was great. Um, I did have a very interesting um, realisation at one point when I was asked to be Reuben the Road Safety Bear which is essentially a road safety program <laughs> with the council. And um, you get to dress up in this big beer suit with this big purple head and dance in front of uh, kindergarten children um, about road safety. So you can imagine after getting my degree, I was like, this is living the dream. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for those listening, if you Google <laughs> Reuben the Road Safety Bear, that was that was a great time in my life. Maybe we use like the... <laughs> Picture of Ruben is the picture for the episode today. I think, yeah. I usually get people to give me, uh, give me a kind of a picture of them, but we could, I could just get one of Ruben instead. Oh goodness gracious! Yeah, and sorry to all the children. Of you, uh, of you dancing? <laughs> no, oh, I'm not sure. Probably somewhere, but you're obviously fully, fully clothed, and you've got this huge, huge head. This thing had a huge head to wear, and you look through the. The nostrils. Is it just the head, or is it the? Is no, it a you body suit wear a big too? suit okay. and everything as well, and big shoes, and it's quite clumsy. You had no peripheral vision either, so you would look through the nose, and suddenly a child would be in front of you, someone's, <laughs> someone's baby. So it was particularly scary. How many kids got taken out? I'm not sure, but sorry to all the children out there, but I <laughs> yeah. had to see that, and um, and those that also saw arms fall off or shoes fall <laughs> off, and know that there was actually uh-huh. a human being underneath. I wasn't very good at it, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't really have the passion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was certainly, yeah, living yeah, the dream. Yeah. It was great. You know, councils in New Zealand are a great first step for a young scientist. So, mm. so where did, like, where could you go from the lofty heights of Reuben? Oh, goodness. Well, it's your oyster, isn't it? <laughs> um, I've actually been, uh, got into the geothermal industry. Um, I, as with uh, with all <laughs> uh, young scientists, you go from contract to contract. I think my LinkedIn profile says it all seamlessly works together, but of course it doesn't. So I, we ended up working on a um, fishing boat in Topol with a friend of mine who was on a break from medical school. Wonderful experience. We were basically fishing all day and meeting interesting people, tourists mm. from around the globe and telling them all sorts of yarns, some of them not correct, some of them correct about <laughs> <laughs> often we would get asked where Middle Earth was and you can imagine the sort of stories that we told. So um yeah, I ended up being in Topol working on a fishing boat and then, then I ended up meeting the Topol community and landing a, a gig at Wairaki Geothermal Station, which was pretty fantastic. Geothermal um, power and the industry in general is one of the most fascinating industries in New Zealand. It's just, it's so innovative. Some of the people that work there have been working and studying um, the aquifers um, for decades. So diligent. It's it's just such a fascinating, um, on the pointy end of science and engineering in this country. And it probably doesn't get enough airtime. But um, yeah, it was a great experience there. It was was interesting at first though, because I was 
of a very limited amount of women at the station. So yeah. <laughs> Have you have you found that kind of throughout your your career in the the scientific field that you the the area that you've chosen that there aren't that many women involved in it or am I just being completely stereotypical there? No, not no, not at all. Um, I think that there is still a big imbalance. I think there's a lot of more people coming into the industry. Um, one of my one, 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 one person in New Zealand who I really admire is a woman called uh, Dr. Michelle Dickinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, She is um, just wonderful, the work that she does, encouraging people to get excited and passionate about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And she has got a wonderful analogy called the leaky pipeline that essentially explains how, um, basically from high school, um, there is a leak of pipeline for gender throughout the industry. So um, the first area is a bar- barrier to entry. So one of the things that is an entry for most scientific degrees, engineering degrees, is physics. And if you're not really great at physics, then obviously no go, you don't get a shoe in. And physics is taught in a way that perhaps doesn't probably tap into the psyche of both sexes in a balanced manner, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the first leak. And then on on the way, there's all these leaks by the time you get the part where you can perhaps make meaningful impact, the pool of people or the amount of water available is a little bit less. Dr. Michelle Dickinson explains it a lot better than I do, but um, it's it's a good analogy to use. Mm, And so um, in my geography class, it was very um, balanced. Um, But then you go into the industries and obviously there is an imbalance there. So there was a big imbalance at the at the at the GSML power plant. But, you know, by the end of my time there, it was, yeah, there was a strong camaraderie. So it just took a little bit, <laughs> it took a little bit of time. It took yeah. me learning Top Gear to watch Top Gear to get in with the, with the <laughs> really? cool group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you in with other groups before you started I was in. I was in with no one. <laughs> <laughs> I was a young environmental advisor at a geothermal power plant. It was, you're the bottom of the pack, mm-hmm. <laughs> bottom yeah. of the food chain, yeah. Okay. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that analogy as well. And, yeah, I, I love the, the stuff that Michelle Dickinson does as well. It's, uh, yeah. It's very, very cool. I've, I've watched her speak a couple of times and she is, yeah, a, f- a fantastic speaker. Yeah, she's um, infectious. She is, she is. How long ago was that? That was quite some time ago. That was in the sort of early 2000s. So let's let's jump forward a little bit at the moment um, to, to what, you're, what you're doing now. Obviously, you're, you're back in Wellington mm-hmm. uh, at the moment and you've been back here for... Uh, for a couple of years, yeah, uh, working working around here, um, but actually, uh, the, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is the clip around the world yacht race. Um, from what we've talked about so far, you haven't really mentioned sailing <laughs> at all, which is which is kind of interesting. So, can you tell me about how the how the idea for the clipper came came about? How did that come into being? Yeah, well, um, as with some things in, in my life, they're not always as planned as one would hope. <laughs> um, I came back into uh, the country in late 2014, but even prior to that, I'd sort of been wanting or investigating a big challenge, mm. and that was all that it, all, all the thoughts that were there. 
just something significant, a big yeah. challenge to undertake. Why, why did you want to have a big challenge to undertake? Were there, were there reasons that you know of for that? Or was all of a sudden it was just there that you thought, this is something I, something I need to do, something I need to find? I think I'm quite curious. I'm quite a curious person and I really like adventure. But on And I hadn't really done anything on a really grand scale. Mm. So it was sort of just bubbling along on, on the surface there for quite a period of time. Um, I'd done some in- really interesting work by being away from the country for about seven, seven years and in the Middle East and PNG in Australia. And that was all from a pr- professional sense. And then there had been ups and downs from a personal sense is what happens in, in, in your twenties as you grow and, and evolve and explore the world. Um, but I hadn't really done anything from a physical sense. And I was mm. watching maybe people around my contemporaries around the world with these wonderful challenges of marathons and iron men and women and kayaking and I don't know, just bizarre ways that they were dedicating their bodies and their minds to these fantastic challenges. And I'm not much of a runner. <laughs> I'm actually quite clumsy. <laughs> and, um, and sort of, I looked at all these different types of extreme challenges and nothing really grabbed me. But um, moving back to Wellington, New Zealand, uh, I didn't know a hell of a lot of people here. And one way to connect with new people is to try, try sport. So, um, yeah, I rocked on down to the yacht club because I figured that there's a harbour and wind, so that seemed like a logical sport to <laughs> yeah. get involved with. And um, they asked about my sailing experience, and obviously it was nothing. It was sort of P classes when I was little in the Whanganui River, but that's about it. Pretty limited stuff. Um, and I didn't really get much of a shoe in at first because I had limited sailing experience. And then this, wonder- this wonderful guy, Bob McVeigh, um, invited me on his boat um, and we went out for my first race and on the first race or the first experience on the boat on uh, the Port Nicholson um, harbour was we did this move which was is called a Chinese jive it's not it's not a good thing to do in a boat essentially particularly one that's about uh, 40 foot and so I was hanging off the side of the boat at this point in time. <laughs> and the um, the woman who was a crew person next to me, Megan, she turned to me and she said, are you okay? And I'm like, this is freaking amazing. <laughs> Obviously, I was hooked, you know. Yeah. I just It was such a buzz. Going out, the wind, the rain, the salt, the waves, just the, the, the f- freshness of it all. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And then I just became a weekend warrior, they call them. Mm. you know, crewing for lots of different people, mostly um, Bob's crew. And um, I was at the time with work doing a few talks around the country um, about my experiences as a young woman going through the oil and gas industry and the construction industry and the engineering industry and um, talking about emerging leadership and the struggles that you have as you are continuing to define who you are and what kind of leader you are. And at one point I sort of felt like I was probably a little bit high horsey and Mm. I had to check myself a little bit. I thought, well, what are you actually doing right now at this point in time to explore that next step? And um, I thought to myself, you need to just stop this until you can work that that next big uh, bite out of life. You know, you need to work that out. And um, 
the the clipper just popped up in my newsfeed one night and I thought, oh, this seems interesting. Click, click, click. Pretty casual about it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the next couple of days I get this email to say that your application was accepted. I'm thinking, what, what did I sign up for again? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden I was being interviewed by um, the recruitment um, woman who had come from the UK for the race uh, in the art gallery in Wellington. And it was probably one of the most intense interviews of my life because they're really trying to get into your psyche and whether or not you're going to be a nutter on board or whether or not you've got enough self-awareness to grow or if you're capable to just to, to get on with the challenge and all the preparations. So yeah, there's a few um, <clears throat> there was a few poignant questions she asked me. One was um, what what skills are you bringing to the race? And that you kind of get put on the spot with that question because mm. I think she was referring to engineering or mechanical or yeah. navigation or being a great cook or something like that. And none of those really are my strong point. I mean, I'm a sort of a June or Jack of all trades and master of none. So I just said that I can tell a good yarn. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and I'm, and I'm a pretty good listener. <laughs> um, and then she said, what is the, um, what is the toughest type of personality um, that you find hard to get on with? And I said, uh, a person with an immature ego. And she said, why is that? And I said, um, because I find them unsafe. And safety is a very uh, important thing on a boat. And often mm. they can be quite rushy um, and too confident in not understanding their ability and most importantly, taking the other people with them on the ride because yeah. you're a crew on a boat. And then she said, you're guaranteed to have this person on the crew. How are you going to deal with them? <laughs> Which is always the case. And I just said, look, you got to be honest. And then you've got to be honest a few times and work things out. And if you can't, then you just have to get on with the job. So, um, so that was the start of it all. It was very, very organic. It wasn't planned. Many people that I've met so far during the training have been planning this challenge for years. Mm. For me, not at all. Probably mentally planning some kind of challenge, but not this yep. particular one. So that's where it all started. Mm. And just kind of appeared at the at the right time. Yeah. At, at yeah. That point. yeah. Good old social media. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's it's interesting as well is that, I mean, obviously a lot of the people that um, you interact with on social media are about the same age as you as well. And it seems to be kind of a common trend, sort of late 20s early 30s that you go and you start to look for those those probably more physical challenges or the other ones that seem to pop up on social media as well people are probably out there looking for the the mental ones as well um and actually when this comes out i will have hopefully have just finished a an ultra marathon so exciting um, yeah which is is pretty exciting as well it's next um, weekend it's next weekend yeah 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 but it, yeah, it's, it's, what does it involve? Uh, so it's sixty k's around the hills of uh, of Wellington. That's a heck of a long way. Yeah, so it starts in Kandala Pool, and then you weave your way around the hills and finish up at, at Mount Vic. Goodness so, gracious! Yeah, if you, I think if you ran straight from Kandala Pool to Mount Vic, it might be ten or fifteen. But you take the long road. Is there a leaving party? Uh, sorry, a welcoming party at the end? Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to convince some people to come up and uh, come up and, and meet me at the end. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So it'll be. Uh, it will be good. 
but yeah, it's it's kind of a it seems to be a common trend uh, among people our age to to kind of go and go and look for that. And actually, kind of jumping back to what you were talking about in regards to the the questions that they that they asked you. One, I mean, one thing that came up for me is when they were kind of screening you and going through this. It sounds like they're looking for the opposite kind of person that they want to put on reality TV. Someone <laughs> that gets along with a lot of people rather than the complete opposite. But the questions that you that you were asked and the way that you answered them, you're obviously very kind of aware of yourself and also aware about uh, having awareness around other people as well um, and how you interact and how they interact with you. How did you how did you develop that? Was that were there any kind of specific events that helped you garner that awareness, or was it just kind of a, a whole lot of little events that have kind of stacked up on top of each other? Um, it's really I've been asked this question a few times before um, over the years, and it's very difficult to um, explain where perhaps innate looking out for other people or watching other people comes from. I think as a child I was pretty empathetic, mm-hmm. um, maybe to do with animals as well, working with animals and, and, and people. And um, we grew up in a family where um, I'd actually lost my little sister, sorry, my older sister. Um, she was little at the time, <laughs> at quite a young age. So I think maybe that had something to do with um, the way that our family was shaped. Mm-hmm. And um, the empathy that that brought out and looking and watching body language and being quite aware at quite a a young age. Um, So I think uh, that may may be from an early developmental perspective. And then over time, I think being so acutely conscious of yourself in very – from the fact that you're quite a minority in your your workplace often – for instance, when I was working in oil and gas in Australia, I was quite often, consistently, the only woman in the room or, an, or the only young person in the room or the only scientist in the room, for instance. Because you're often that minority, become so aware of yourself, preparing for those places, how you're going to hold yourself, how you're going to interact with others of different demographics or ethnic backgrounds or disciplines or hierarchy. And um, you you become self analytical, and then hopefully that evolves over time to a place where you are not you know you don't want to verge on narcissism, but <laughs> um, you can be a bit more watchful. So I'm not really sure if that yeah. explains. So it's kind of a it's I mean it, it sounds like it's been shaped by your environment and your experiences, but it's also a skill that you've worked hard on developing, almost at times out of necessity. Yeah, 100%. And I think also from a work perspective and a friendship perspective, um, getting um, having honest conversations with people, mm. you know, having people say, hey, you know, what you did there wasn't that great. That was a really uncool move. You should probably think about that. Yeah. You know, and being really aware of your flaws. Like I'm a particularly intense person, <laughs> quite quite passionate sometimes, and that can rub people up the wrong way. Um, so you're just being aware of that. And when you're a bit of a dick, you know, everyone can be a dickhead every now and then. 
Um, some probably more than most. Yeah. You need to be. I mean, I've learned to apologize quickly, mm. but give some meaning behind it to say, "Look, I'm really sorry for whatever happened just then. Um, it was it was slightly awkward or horrendously awkward, and <laughs> these are the reasons why." Um, yeah, maybe that's got a part to play in it as well. So I've had some really great mentors, and I've got some incredibly good friends that are pretty pretty brutally honest every now and then, which is very very helpful. <laughs> it is, yeah, and I think I mean we we were talking slightly on this topic before we we started recording as well is that it's not particularly the Kiwi way to have those really honest, open conversations. Um, And I think, I mean, speaking from a young-ish Kiwi male perspective as well, it's not something that, um, that kind of naturally comes easy for for us um so it's it's something that i've definitely had to work on um and kind of make the conscious choice that hey i need to i need to get better at at expressing this and i need to um well i could have actually just kind of swung through uh swung through life without that but obviously we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if i'd made that choice um and i think it's it's something that I've, as I've started to do more, I still find it really hard actually having honest, open conversations with people sometimes. But the more that I do it, it gets slightly easier. But I also I find that every time I walk away from a conversation like that that I've had with someone, I I know a lot more. Um, I understand kind of more about myself. I understand more about them. Um, and more often than not, I feel better about myself as a person afterwards as well. So it's mm. an interesting kind of kind of byproduct of that. Couldn't agree with you more, Chris. You know, it's um if you're in a um a work environment as a team or a family environment as a team, a crew on a boat for instance, bottling up things is very unhelpful to the to the dynamic. It's really important to be able to talk. Um, about how things are going and all the awkward things that are associated with that because otherwise they just manifest and um, they will manifest and build up and then they may come out in, a, in a, an appropriate way or in a way that um, perhaps doesn't reflect the uh, the scale of them mm-hmm. um, and people can go, oh gosh, where did that come from? Um, so yeah, I really enjoy how you've, um, established this, uh, podcast to try and push yourself, Mm. but also others into that space. I think it's incredibly healthy. Um, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you about all sorts of things, but, um, and you're very relaxing to talk to, but (laughs) (laughs) you're a pro, you're a pro. (laughs) Um, uh, and it's great. I think more, um, more young people, particularly young, young blokes, um, like you said, it is sort of in our psyche in New Zealand a little bit, you know, not talk about things. Um, I'm probably going to go off on a tangent a little bit here, but, you know, we've um, one of the things with the race is it's for UNICEF. So the Clip Around the World race is for UNICEF. So I spent a little bit of time recently looking at some of the work that UNICEF does in New Zealand in particular. And um, right now we've got an incredibly shameful position with regards to child welfare, child well-being. Um, and that's reflected in our homicide rates, our um, poverty, income poverty. It's reflected um, in all of the 
all of the attributes from the sort of OECD EU um, ranking, I think we're number 34 out of mm. a possible 41. That's not okay. And um, and suicide as well. And we've got a very high youth suicide rate. And um, it's not getting any better. And I think a lot to do with that is obviously um, circumstances of poverty can manifest, um, but also our, our culture of not being comfortable with being uncomfortable perhaps Chris um, my father at the latter end of his um, his life was working in the rural sector doing a lot of um, support with rural support and mediations and he came across it at that end of the spectrum as well feeling safe enough or having a safe space to to talk um, about how things are going fiscally with your business or your farm or your or emotionally with your family is really, really important. Um, I think probably, though, the most important word in that sentence is feeling safe. Mm. Yeah. A lot of people don't feel feel safe or don't have a, a, an option or an environment where they can talk. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with you, with you there. And I think that, I mean, the, the stuff that you're, that you're doing and the, the support, that uh, that UNICEF gives people with that is it's a, a great sort of way to kind of start to create some of that that safety around conversation and safety around uh, discussing those topics that are that are hard that are challenging for people, um, which I think is is going to be one of the, the most important ways to to change all those all those things that you mentioned before uh, about the uh, about kind of how we go as as Kiwis with looking after everybody in New Zealand and making sure that um, helping these people that that need help um, and helping them help themselves with that as well by by having conversations around that um, and kind of giving them other other options that they can take. Definitely. I think also a big part of it is um, for a human being to know that they are contributing, they are part of mm. helping society, no matter if they're feeling a little bit dark and upset and lonely inside themselves, having someone or, or a group of people remind them that they are incredibly important to the world particularly a child mm. because when that child grows up they're going to invest some goodness in the world whether it's extreme or just little by little the little things are really important there is going to be joy that they give or um, a contribution back to our society so everyone plays a part and for a life to end um, unnecessarily because they feel like they're not contributing is such a shame so another part to the whole um, UNICEF and Clipper um, race is is doing an adventure or a challenge that's about your dreams and having a stretch goal um, for an everyday person to try and achieve something a little bit mad. Um, meeting people along the race, for instance, um, has been one of the most extraordinary um, things, listening to every everyone's stories that I've been training with. One guy, for instance, who... Uh, through his teens and 20s, was a, a drug addict. And he's completely turned his life around, and now he's sailing the world. 
and saved like hell um, on a very simple income um, to try and do this wonderful thing for UNICEF, for himself, for the race, and to try and give back. And his story um, is incredibly private, but is so overwhelmingly inspirational. And he will be able to connect with a whole group of society on that really authentic level. And he's just going to be a rock star um, when he comes back with the amount of work that he'll be able to contribute, you know, work he'll be doing with, with schools and all sorts of things. So um, encouraging others to say things things are perhaps are really grim right now because things are very, very grim um, in our in our demographic of children in New Zealand and for anyone listening or anyone out there that doesn't think it is, it's not the case, it's 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 grim um, for people that are working with children in New Zealand to try and create a better future or encourage them to have um, significance and a place and a voice, um, I just think are outstanding individuals. Mm. Yeah, really well said. Alex, I'm gonna I'm gonna change change tack a little bit with you here. Um, did you like that? Did you like that? <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> obviously, we kind of you more than I have an understanding of what the clipper is, but for the people that don't, logistically, yeah, okay, what is it? This is a good thing to talk we about. Should, we should have talked about that a little while ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not getting your hair cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so the 101, so Clip Around the World Yacht Race is a yacht race that uh, targets those that have a, a drive for an adventure with an altruistic component but have perhaps limited sailing experience. So it's 12 uh, racing vessels. Each of them are around um, 73 feet. Um, and they're monohull, single mast, um, racing against each other around the globe. And there's eight legs. When you sign up for the, for the race or apply to, to be a part of the race, you can either apply to do one leg or two legs or three or as many as you like, or you can do the whole circumnavigation of the globe, which takes around 11 months. Um, Prior for, to the race leaving, so this discussion with you today, Chris, is the before yeah. shot. <laughs> um, prior to the race leaving on the 20th of August, each participant is required to do four levels of training, um, and they are offshore on uh, on the training vessels. You can do them either in Sydney or you can do them in the UK, based out of Portsmouth. Um, and levels one to four include everything from navigation to flares to man overboard drills to 101 of the upper deck 101 of below deck um, a lot of sea survival work all sorts of things every aspect of sailing is covered it's a very very thorough course and as you get towards the end of the training you're doing more race tactics and a little bit more in-depth sailing um, experience unfortunately um, we've recently had sorry fortunately we've recently won the America's Cup <laughs> but unfortunately on the clipper we still um, are grinding with our arms rather than our legs <laughs> I saw I saw your video of it. you didn't look quite as smooth as Team New Zealand <laughs> no not quite not quite there I probably still need to up the ante on the fitness <laughs> um, so that's the that's the 101 um the crew that I'll be racing with, so the, the, there's 12 boats. Um, each of them are sponsored. I'm actually on the UNICEF vessel, which is obviously a non-sponsored um, vessel. It's the one that's dedicated um, for the UNICEF brand. Um, 
the group of people that I'll be racing with, I'm doing Liverpool to Uruguay to Cape Town, so crossing the Atlantic twice. Uh, I haven't met before, so I'll be meeting them in a few weeks. Uh, 20 of us, one skipper, all newbies, um, demographically uh, balanced, age 70 down to 18. Age uh, is, is great to have in terms mm. of experience and ability and those things that you learn about tolerance and empathy on such a interesting challenge and gender and also ethnicity. So it's all pretty, it's, it's pretty uh, good group of people that are interested in it so far. I've met just wonderful people during the training, but I'll be meeting my crew um, for the first time in, in two weeks. So hopefully they think I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wicked. I want to talk to you about, uh, resilience as well because I, I know that you've, you've mentioned that you want to kind of test out your resilience and see see what it's like on this uh, on the trip what is what does resilience mean to you and and why do you think that you need to test it yeah it's a um it's a fascinating topic um what it means to me is of in no shape or form the Oxford Dictionary definition <laughs> <laughs> like most things in Alex's life <laughs> um, I think um, resilience for me personally is how you in a healthy way cope and bounce back from a significant challenge in life whether it be a physical, mental, emotional um, professional challenge and um, so if I look at previous situations whether it be love and loss which many people have gone through uh, if you love well then obviously and you lose or it ends um, that can be quite significant to move past um, or professional challenges such as I don't know having big projects and finishing them and sort of the feeling that aftermath or being mm. made redundant or being in remote locations and having challenging, you know, colleagues or um, circumstances, all of those things I've sort of dealt with in life, and but I've never done a physical physical challenge. Um, one thing I've learned in my latter, latter years is that in terms of any kind of trauma, to do what I call it's a bit funny, really, um, basically asset management of the mind. So. I don't own many fancy things. You could say I've got a crappy um, 1989 Corolla and a really bad CD collection, um, which my best friend is going to love if uh, things don't, things go topsy-turvy <laughs> <laughs> during the race. But, um, but one thing that I do own, which is incredibly important to me and expensive, is my mind. And so I figured that you got to look after that. So I've always been very proactive with the mental health component. Mm. Um, and I think that that is part of uh, the resilience journey. Uh, I find resilient people um, are those that are pretty good at about healthily dealing with uh, dealing with things, dealing with challenges, dealing with circumstances, in whatever shape or form that suits them. It might be talking, it might be getting healthy, it might be just being close to loved ones and family and friends for a wee while and battening, excuse me, battening down the hatches. Anyway, so resilience in this um, component, I'm just really intrigued about. I'm curious, um, what what am I going to be like on in the middle of the ocean after God knows how many days of seasickness? Because yes, I do get seasick. <laughs> 
Um, what are, what am I going to be like in terms of confined circumstance, uh, confined living, um, with 19 other crew and uh, the heat or in the cold and the wet? Um, what am I going to be like when I'm fatigued and hungry? What am I going to be like when I'm fatigued and hungry and bruised and battered? Um, and how am I going to deal with that? I'm really curious. I don't have those answers. I'm just very curious to find out and push myself. I know it sounds a bit mad, but push myself into that, those places and really explore that, um, through this, through this mechanism, which is the clipper race. Mm, Very cool. And I know that you have, you've talked to a few people, uh, so far kind of about experiences that you, you might have, including Kathy Tracy, mm, who Kathy also is amazing. tells a great yarn. <laughs> yeah, she's very cool. She's sensational. Yeah. Um, yeah. but do you have any kind of expectations at the moment around, around things that, that might happen or things that you, that you might learn? Um, I want to say I don't, but I think that that would be unhuman. You know, mm-hmm. you you always dream, you know, imagine what things are going to be like. So rather than expectations, I have an imagination, a big mm-hmm. imagination. So I imagine, you know, that there is going to be a day or two where you crash and you hit a wall and you're not so you're not so kind to yourself and others. Um, there will be moments where there will be pure beauty, um, that peacefulness out in the sea not seeing land, just you alone with the ocean and, and your stinky comrades on the boat <laughs> and um, uh, also the wildlife. Um, expectation of um, when things go wrong and, and, and what you need to practice from a theoretical perspective or a emergency response perspective. So you, you think about every aspect when you're preparing for something like this in an exhaustive way. Um, but if I was to be cliche, you know, <laughs> you'll go and I, I could go into it imagining all sorts of scenarios and none of them may pl- play out and might have a completely different experience. Mm. Um, I think, I hope it's going to be positive, but you've also got to be open that it could be, it could be damn awful. Who knows? Um, but you've got to take that risk. Yeah. You're ready to be okay with it if it's damn awful. Yeah, I think I am. I'm, um, I'm an unforgiving optimist. Yeah. So it's pretty difficult for me to have damn awful. Um, you know, there has been a couple of times during the training where things have been a little bit grim, but otherwise, um, yeah, I'm a pretty good optimist. Yeah. I think putting things into perspective helps with that. Your damn awful is in no way, shape or form like anyone else's damn awful in the world that are going through some trying times. So that kind of good, brutal reminder is, is pretty good when you think things are bottom low. Yeah. 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 A lot of it is... In regards to perspective, yeah, with it with it as well. Hopefully, <laughs> it's a mixture of scary and amazing, and so much fun for you. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm hoping it's going to be all those things. Um, you know, people say, "Are you scared?" And I said, "Of course I am. I'm mm. terrified, mostly because I'm so clumsy." <laughs> <laughs> so I'll probably do something clumsy in the first day, knowing me, but um. Yeah, there's been a few injuries over the last year and sort of my, my friends and colleagues have rolled their eyes and thinking, goodness, how are you going to survive this challenge? But I certainly if we were back in the day and, you know, natural selection, I probably would slip on a leaf and game over. But <laughs> hopefully we'll get through this journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully we can do an after one with you as well, Alex. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Cool. I think we've we've covered off some really interesting stuff with with that, and I'm I'm looking forward to kind of seeing how how it all plays out for you. Um, if people want to kind of follow along with the stuff that you have been doing, um, are you going to be doing? Are you going to be posting some stuff uh, while you're on the journey as well? Yeah, it's interesting with the race. Um, from a personal perspective, people can find me on. On Instagram, Alex Sales the Atlantic, or Facebook, Alex mm. here Sales the Atlantic. Um, however, when we're on the race, obviously we don't have access to mm. social media, so um, all of the updates are through the Clipper page, www.clipperroundtheworld.com, and it'll be interesting because people on land or followers will know more about what we are up to in the race than we will Mm. because you will be able to follow the 12 vessels. um, You'll be able to see live updates of video. We have an HD camera system attached to um, each of the vessels, um, which shoots uh, interesting things. (laughs) Hopefully not too interesting, you know, brushing your (laughs) teeth at 6am or something (laughs) like that. Um, And, um, and also live updates of, of us racing. So which, which vessel, obviously coming first fingers crossed it's one that's got predominantly kiwis on it yeah (laughs) it's kind of in our blood we'll claim it at the moment (laughs) thank you sir peter blake (laughs) um and uh yeah and when we land of course there'll be media um in both liverpool which is leaving the leaving date is the 20th of august um and then our welcome party um, safely in uruguay Ponta del Este is where we get uh, hosted nice. ports for League One, and then Cape Town, South Africa, is our um, is our next stop. Yeah, cool, cool. And I'll put some links uh, to that in the notes for the show as well, so people can uh, check out all your all your interesting stuff and, and follow along with the journey. I've got a couple of questions, Alex, that I like to ask everyone towards the end of the end of the chat. Uh, the first one is: Can you tell me about a time that you have failed and uh, what you learned from it? Goodness. Um, oh, last weekend I made some really bad poached eggs. <laughs> yeah. You know, you when you make poached eggs, it either goes one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you can you can right royally fail poached eggs, and I think the lessons learnt there is to not rush these things. Um, no, in all seriousness, failure. It's not. Uh, it's not really a word that I find comfortable. To be quite honest, um, I know that uncomfortable is okay but um because I don't really see failure um I see making rip-roaringly big mistakes Mm -hmm. definitely um but failure is something that um, has for me connotated as you don't bounce back or your resilience doesn't kick in or you haven't learned anything or it's not really really positive so um for me, mistakes or heading in a different direction or learning something really significant from things going belly up or pear shaped, and that can happen in a really micro situation like dire poached eggs, or a really large situation such as taking a wrong wrong turn in life, hanging out with the wrong crew, or making the wrong choice for just a short period of time until somebody says, "Hey." You know, is that is that quite right? Maybe you just need a little bit of a nudge in the right direction. So, yeah, the word failure doesn't really um, feature much in my vocabulary. I think you need to make regular mistakes to keep yourself grounded. <laughs> mm, cool. I like that answer. I really like that answer. Alex, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? 
Hmm. Well, I've been pretty nervous about talking to you, Chris. Have you? <laughs> oh, just because you thought you might not get the voice back? <laughs> well, yeah, sorry to everyone. I have got a very croaky voice. Good old um, winter winter blues have been going around our capital city recently in New Zealand. Um, the uncomfortable thing that I've done recently, I think it's fair to say that this, this challenge has got its uncomfortable moments. Um, if you could imagine... Every single time you turn up to your training, it's a week at sea or a few, quite a few days, say three to five days at sea. And the first thing you do is you walk onto a boat and you meet um, a whole bunch of new people. And prim- from a primal perspective, you're sizing them up and they're sizing you up in terms of strength and ability and intellect and you know who would be contributing to what. And this is a group of utter strangers and within 24 hours, you've seen each other probably vomit or change or their ailments in the kitchen or how they might have a bad technique or a good technique with a, with a halyard or a, um, sorry, with a rope. Yeah. Um, that could be unsafe or really safe or you learn something from them. And that's a really, really intense period of time. But if you imagine that in a workplace, you would never ever often with some colleagues that you may work with for years and years, or even some family members or friends be in that circumstance. So on the boat, within a 24-hour period, you learn so much about another human being. It's incredible and can be incredibly confronting for a lot of people, and even me to a certain degree, um, and it can be quite overwhelming. And um, I think that that's probably one of the most uncomfortable positions I've, I've been in recently, but I've got used to it. And um, not that I'm going to start, you know, brushing my teeth at work in front of everyone or anything like that. <laughs> that would be a bit strange. But um, yeah, it, it really opens your eyes to the fact that we're all just these, you know, wonderful human beings, these machines, these these walking, um, smart, wonderfully minded people. We're all quite the same, really. Um, and we're just trying to give you know, the world a bit of a nudge and trying to maybe create a voice for someone, someone else that hasn't done or live life to the fullest. And um, it really brings, that 24-hour period really brings um, everything to such a place of rawness. It's absolutely incredible. So um, maybe that, <laughs> maybe that uncomfortability is okay then. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. You might have exactly the same answer to the next question, but what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? Um, Next uncomfortable thing, if I'm looking massive scale, um, in the next decade I would love to um, raise a family and, I mean, that's a pretty significant thing. Mm. Um, It's quite significantly uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um putting your faith in terms of creating other beings is a, is a massive step. For me, that's a bit uncomfortable because I wasn't even sure whether or not that's a possibility or an option or if I was okay with that. But over the last maybe few years, I'm probably getting a little bit more okay. I wouldn't say I'm full throttle there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit of an adventurer. <laughs> yeah. But that would be a pretty significant uh, challenge for me or um, mentally, physically, emotionally, sustained all the rest of it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, ca- I think uncom- the next uncomfortable thing after the race will be working out um, what did I learn from it 
and how can I take those learnings to contribute better to my community or contribute or listen in a, a more effective manner to my colleagues, my friends, my family. Mm. Um, that'll be a big challenge post-race. What do you do next? How do you, how do you absorb and um, decompress and debrief and all the things that you've gone through? So yeah. that'll be an interesting time. Mm, we're in the before stage so yeah Yeah. and i think i mean the obviously with the the second part with the the decompression i think it's it's really important to take that time um in regards to to doing that after you've been through anything but especially a a challenge that big and that kind of so often we're just kind of encouraged and often we'll do this ourselves is encouraged to go what's next what's next what's next and just when you finish, as soon as you finish something, starting something new and not taking that time for a bit of reflection and a little bit of learning time around um, what you've just done, what you've achieved and kind of the, the lessons that you can you can take from it and start oh. to apply them <clears throat> to your life. 100% Chris, you see it when you go often to a place where there, there is a beautiful view mm. and the first thing that people do is take out their phones. Yeah. Rather than just absorb it for a second yeah. um, or two, yeah. or maybe not even take a photo at all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same. Yeah, the same. I couldn't agree with you more. It's hard though. I mean, you're a, a very driven person yourself, like those really great challenges. You've got your ultra mm. marathon coming up next week, just to take that, that time, that time, that beautiful time just after one of those challenges, just to absorb and, and probably give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back. To say, hey, wow, that was pretty cool. I worked really hard for that and made a lot of sacrifices to get to that point. And, um, and I've achieved it and done all right. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Alex, I've got one more, uh, one more question for you, but I just want to take a minute to say thanks again for, for coming around, <laughs> sharing some time with me, but also thank you very much for, your honesty and having these these conversations with people and, and supporting people to to have these conversations and help people have have them as well. Um, it's it's so easy to to talk to you and so easy to to listen to your story. You do spin a you do spin a great yarn, <laughs> um, but it's a it's a, a deep, self aware, insightful yarn. It's not it's not superficial. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Chris. <laughs> Likewise, easy as it's nice and comfortable. <laughs> Thank you. And for those that can't see, we also have amazing slices in front of us right now. <laughs> yeah, they, they are good. A Delicious. Shout, yeah, shout out to Dunshay's Deli just up the road. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, last, last one for you, Alex. Do you have any advice or life lessons or maybe a challenge to leave leave me and the listeners with today? Um, probably two really. Um, one that I've been talking to a lot of friends, uh, colleagues, um, people with community people with recently is, um, asking ourselves, what is our impossible dream? And I know that seems a little bit, I don't know, David Bowie-ish, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, but having those conversations about dreams is really important Recently, um, there was the Sir Peter Blake Leadership Week held and 
that was a, a conversation that we were able to have with a lot of schools, school children about their dreams. And it's a really important thing to have no matter what age you are. And it's fascinating standing in front of a group of 10 and 11 year olds and them, and having the privilege of them sharing their dreams with you. Um, it's a pretty special situation to go through. But then it, quite interesting enough, you'll say to an adult friend or colleague, what's your dream? And we're a lot more private about it, or maybe not as seasoned about talking about our dreams. So the first thing probably is, I mean, I'm really interested about talking about our dreams a lot more. Um, <laughs> the second thing is something that came from my, my father who, um, who passed away uh, only, a, only a couple of, less than a couple of years ago. And I, he wasn't really one to offer too much advice to me because I was probably, you know, daughter like father, a bit stubborn. <laughs> so he chose his timing really well when he did. And it was very poignant and you would listen tentative, yeah, intensely, sorry. Um, but he said to me one day, I think it was maybe he was staying or we were at our holiday home. It was sort of out of the blue. And um, what he said to me resonated with me both metaphorically and literally and I use it as a little bit of a mantra um he said oh whatever you do when you get up in the morning make sure you do one thing Alexandra I said radio dad what's that thinking to myself you know shower brush your teeth go and have a coffee coffee is important <laughs> he said always make your bed and I thought about this a lot um post his his um his death and those words and Making your bed is, is making your bed for your life, um, making your bed um, for others to be, you know, um, enduring and being grateful for things. Um, but from a physical sense, making your bed in the morning and then coming home and you've got a made bed is, is a pretty good thing because you feel grateful the fact that you've got a bed, for instance, and it looks damn good to get into, particularly if it's a bit freezing outside like the Wellington winter. <laughs> But making your bed for life and being grateful for what you've got, um, I think is a really, really important um, important thing. So, yeah, Gerald here, he left me with a pearl of there. I tell you what, so well done, Dad. Um, it's something that stuck with me and really resonated and a um, bit of a mantra for me at the moment. So, yeah, something about bedtime, dreams and making your bed. How unusual. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Alex, thank you for getting uncomfortable with me today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.